you're able, would you stand with me in reverence to God's word? Our uh, text from for today's sermon is from Psalm 65. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. This is the word of God. May his name be praised. Let's pray. O oh God, we have before us the eternal and infallible word of God. Lord, who is able to be the mouthpiece of God to proclaim your word to your people? I ask, O oh God, by your Holy Spirit, empower me and uh, use me for the proclamation of your truth into the hearts of your people for the glory of Christ, that we may rejoice in God and give thanks to God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. The psalm today, as we saw in today's text, begins with the words, praise is due to you, O God. And so the, the title for the sermon is the same, praise is due to you, O God. And the superscript of this psalm, the little words that appear in your Bible above the psalm, says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Sometimes the superscript is helpful to give us the historical setting or the context in which the psalm appears. But this time, the setting is not given, except that it is a psalm of David, and that is a song. So it's intended to be sung. And it is a song praising God for his blessings. And at the end of the psalm, especially the last third, 
the theme of an abundant harvest is present. There's this rich imagery of, of the hills being decked and the wagon tracks overflowing with abundance and the river of God is filled with water and, and there's this, this rich imagery that highlights the bountifulness of the harvest and the, the richness of the provision of God that is shown through the harvest to the people. And then in response to God's abundant provision, the psalmist makes this song as a song of praise to God. So that's, that's the setting of this psalm. And some commentators suggest that it could be that this psalm occurs after a, a, a particularly abundant harvest, one that is just above the usual with respect to the amount that God has provided to his people. And maybe it even comes after a period of unseasonable drought when the rains didn't come and, and the crops didn't produce properly and the food production in the Near East was and, and even still is tremendously dependent on the seasonal rains and the proper weather. It's like California and for that matter the Okanagan except for we have the, all the irrigation but if there wasn't any rain we wouldn't have any food and th that was the problem that the people of Israel faced and you can remember throughout the scriptures the, the stories many of them especially in the book of Genesis and other places where, where the context is a drought or a famine, that the people were in need because of the, the lack of water and the lack of, of crop. But this year, the, the, the occasion for which David is preparing this psalm, the rains came, the land produced abundantly, and the people rejoice. And out of thanksgiving, Offer up a psalm of praise to God, acknowledging the abundance of his provision and blessing upon his people. It has also been suggested by a number of commentators that this psalm maybe was occasion for singing by the Jews when they gathered in Jerusalem during the Feast of Weeks, which was also called the Pentecost, which was a time when the Jews gathered together and worshiped God it was a, a solemn assembly. It was a feast where the, 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 the Jewish uh, men were commanded to gather, and that followed the, the autumn harvest. So it might be that the setting here is the assembly of the people of God before the tabernacle at the Feast of Weeks, where sacrifices were being made and grain offerings and thanksgiving offerings were being made unto God. And, and the psalm is the voice that David is using to sing praises unto God uh, in the congregational worship of God, particularly in recognition of God's bountiful blessing at the harvest. So that's kind of the, the background. Now let's look at the psalm itself. Just a, a couple of observations before we get in. Psalm 65, it is a, a song entirely devoted to praising God. We look through the psalm, we do not find one word of complaint. We do not find any requests, no supplications. There's nothing asked of God in this psalm. It's only on praise, entirely focused on praising God. Another observation is that this is a very God-centered psalm. Look at how many times the word you is used in this psalm. You, O God. You who hear prayer, you who atone for our sins, you who have blessed us, etc. 
Actually, 19 times the word you or yours is, uh, is given in the psalm. In comparison to me appearing only once. And ours or we or us appearing just four times. So the focus is clearly and squarely placed on God and his praise. And then third, this is a little bit less clear, but notice the psalm's location within the book of Psalms. And for this, I'm going to ask you just to move around the book of Psalms a little bit. So if we go back a handful of Psalms, all the way back to Psalm 52. Psalm 52 is a, uh, a song of complaint and lament. And from Psalm 52 to 53, 54, 55, all the way to Psalm 64, we have this long section of psalms devoted to crying out to God for deliverance, asking God to save me from enemies, asking where is God when evildoers camp out against me, praying that God would judge the wicked, thirsting for God in the, in the midst of weariness of soul, giving voice to a complaint of, where is God? I, where is, I, my soul longs for God, requests that God show his salvation. So there's this long section of Psalms, Psalm 52 all the way to Psalm 64, that are really emphasizing the, the anguish of heart that the psalmist has. One of those psalms we preached, the last time I preached, which you might remember, Psalm 63. And that was in November last year. Some of you might remember, I was preaching in my living room. I had two like bookshelves stacked on top of each other and my computer was here. And then I preached over Zoom because that was in the middle of COVID. And I think about three quarters of the sick of the church was sick and they were watching me from there's through the Zoom screen in the living room. And some of you were very sick. In fact, I can't remember if it was before or after I preached. Some of us even had to go to the hospital. So what a difference in the setting of the psalm between that psalm, Psalm 63, where the psalmist is crying out to God in the midst of a barren wilderness. The psalmist is thirsting. There is no water. His soul longs for God. He, he, he's desperate in his plea to God in comparison to today's psalm, Psalm 65, where it's just like you, you almost feel like you're getting wet by the amount of water and abundance and blessing, and, and it, it's the opposite of thirsting. It's, it's this praise for God because of the overflowing abundance of food and and blessing that God has showered upon his people. And Psalm 65 introduces this shift in the tenor of the Psalms, and, and it continues actually from Psalm 66, 67, 68. They all have this similar pattern and, and even a similar superscription that says something like a Psalm of David, a song. And, and from this Psalm all the way to Psalm 68, there's this similar theme of praising God for his abundance and his power and his blessing. It has been said that every human emotion of the human soul is found somewhere in the Psalms. So wherever you are, there's a description of that and a prayer for that somewhere in the book of Psalms. And so it is certainly fitting for us to cry out to God in a time of distress. 
It is certainly appropriate to cast our cares upon God in a time of grief because he cares for us. He is our heavenly father. But also it is fitting, like today, to intentionally and deliberately go to God in praise, in acknowledgement of his grace, praising him for his marvelous deeds done in power and love, and praising the bountiful provision that God has given to his people from his loving hand. So that's where we are today. It's fitting for us today to follow the footsteps of David as he lifts up a song of praise to God in Psalm 65. And we see in this psalm three, generally three sections. We can divide it into three separate sections. Verses 1 to 4 praises God for his grace. Verses 5 to 8 praises God for his mighty deeds. And then verses 9 to 13 praises God for the abundance of his provision. So let's begin with verses 1 to 4. Praise to the God of grace. Let's read verses 1 to 4 again. It says, Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts, and we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. The psalm begins with this, praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. Praise is due means that praise is owed. It is fitting, it is seemly, it is proper, it is right for God to be praised. But the way that the, the psalm begins is maybe a little unexpected. It's very unusual. It's, it's very passive. It doesn't say, I praise you, or we praise you. But it says, praise is due you, O God. I think this shows that it's not just uh, some people who should praise God, but that God is worthy of praise from all his creation. It is the duty of all men and angels and creatures to praise God. And God deserves praise because he is God. And it is right for all people at all times, in all places, to praise God. And it is especially right at a time of thanksgiving, at a time where God has showered out bountiful blessings on his people for them to assemble in praise, to thank him and to praise him for the multitude of blessings and worship him for his marvelous grace and love and power. And that's what the people of God are doing in this psalm. And it says, praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. Generally, it refers to the city of Jerusalem, the city that God has chosen for his people to gather together in worship. But more specifically, Zion is often used in the scriptures to refer to that hill in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, where the tabernacle sat, or later on the temple sat. And from there we get this sense that perhaps the setting of the psalm truly is uh, an assembled worship of the people of God gathered before the tabernacle in worshiping God, and, and, and this is occurring at the time of harvest. 
but, but verse 1 ends by saying, to you shall vows be performed. And this has the sense of being not just a corporate time of worship, but a personal time of worship as well. That these vows, which, which are personal commitments and, and personal promises to God to worship Him, are being performed to God. And, and maybe this is referring to the vows that the Israelite farmers had made early in the year and now are, are fulfilling the vow in response to the bountiful blessing that God had given to them. And, 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 and so we, we can see in this psalm the reasons that are prompting the psalmist's song of praise. And let's look at them in verse 2. You hear prayer. And then in verse 3, you atone for sin. And then verse 4, you choose and bring your people near to you and satisfy them with goodness. So the, the psalmist, the occasion here is there's this abundance of material blessings that God has given to his people. The people have gathered together. They're worshiping him. And then unexpectedly, when, when David begins praising God, it's not talking about material things at all. It's talking about spiritual blessings, blessings of God's grace that he has bestowed. Beginning with verse 2, O you who hear prayer. And, and, and this is a title for God, and a glorious title it is, that he is the one who hears prayer, that he is not a God unconcerned or removed from the lives of his people, but a personal God who hears his children when they cry out to him. Maybe David had in mind a specific instance when he cried out to God. There's so many of them recorded for us in the scriptures. In Psalm 18, David was fleeing from the hand of Saul, and he cried out to God for deliverance. And Psalm 18.6 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord, and to my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. David was hard-pressed, and he prayed for the Lord's deliverance, and the Lord heard his prayer. So David exclaimed in another place in Psalm 28, verse 6, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The one who hears prayer hears the prayer of his people. And then worshipers are ready to run to him. So David said in the end of verse 2, To you all flesh shall come. David's eagerness to come to the Lord is motivated by the fact that God hears the prayers of his people. I think the point here is that God is not a God far away. He is not a God like the gods of this world, which are mute idols. But God is the true God, David's shepherd, the God of creation, the transcendent and all-powerful sovereign, and yet also the imminent God who is ear is attuned to the prayers made by his people. So then this brings David into verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for my transgressions. And this is the one time that David refers to himself within the psalm. And here he acknowledges this reality that he is a sinner, that his approach to God in worship is blocked because of his iniquities and transgressions. David knows 
that even though he, he, he loves the Lord, he is a man after God's own heart, but still he has sinned grievously against God. And, and the consequence of sin for David, and as well as for us, is that we are cast out from the presence of God and unable to worship God properly unless our sin is dealt with. It is uh, just like our father Adam, who was cast out from the Garden of Eden, in the same way David uh, identifies himself as, as being in Adam. He says, um, he uses the word iniquity and transgression to describe his sin. Iniquity implies a, a willful rebellion, that he sins not, not accidentally, but he sins because he is a sinner, that he is, uh, shares in Adam's fallen nature. And transgression, which is a refusal to submit to rightful authority and then violation of the law of God. And that's what David says. And David's problem is our problem. We are sinners. And our access unto God is blocked by our sin. And worse than that, unless it is atoned for, incurs God's wrath and must be punished by death as a violation of God's infinite holiness. Sin not only destroys fellowship with God, but it brings down judgment upon our heads unless that sin can be dealt with. So how can that sin be dealt with? The psalmist gives the answer in his praise that you atone for our transgressions at the end of verse 3. To atone means to cover sin and its effects. And the Old Testament picture for atonement is the sacrifice of atonement. A lamb or a goat was slain and its blood was sprinkled on, on the cover, on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And this animal's blood is sprinkled and the animal dies. But the psalmist knows that it's not the animal that atones for sin. But, but David says, you atone for our transgressions. David knows that it is God himself who atones for sin, that atonement comes from God. And then this was clear to him from the Old Testament scriptures in Genesis 3, that God promised the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and bring deliverance and atonement for the people of God. David no doubt remembered the picture in Genesis 15 when God is, is making the covenant with Abraham and Abraham is put into this deep sleep and then a flaming torch and a burning fire pot, which represents the, the presence of God, passes between these two hacked up pieces of animals. And, 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 and God is the one going between those pieces, indicating that the curses for the violation of the covenant would be paid out by God. And then, of course, the, the Passover lamb in, in the, the book of Exodus, which points to the ultimate Lamb of God who would ultimately and finally and completely offer sacrifice for the payment of the sins of the people of God. And, and so David, he didn't see the details. He, he didn't know the fullness, as we now know, of what the gospel would entail. But he knew that God atones for my transgressions. And so he praised God in recognition of God's grace. And he praised God that, God, you have atoned for my sins. In another place, the, David said, Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord 
does not count against him whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man. David knew this blessing, and he praises God. And in another psalm, he says, Psalm 103, that the, my sins, as far as the east is from the west, so the Lord has removed our sins from us. So though he did not see the, the fullness of the glory of the detail about how would God bring about atonement, yet David believed that God would atone for sin, a payment would be made by which he could be forgiven and counted as righteous. And so this prompted David to praise God for God's grace. And of course, we know where this atonement comes from. We know that the, the fulfillment of David's hope would come through the sacrifice of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, David's better son, the, the lamb without blemish. Hebrews 10.10 says that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That the Lord Jesus, David's greater son, born of a virgin, would take on flesh, that he would make his dwelling with us, that he would obey all the righteousness of God in his life, and then would die on the cross to atone for the sins of the people of God by his shed blood. The scripture says that the life of a creature is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness in Hebrews 9. And, and, and so just as the, the, the picture of the lamb's blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, Jesus' blood was poured out on the cross. And by the sacrifice of Christ, David's sins, my sins, and your sins, and the sins of all who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ may be atoned for. And through this atonement, God put forward that it is now God's people who are counted righteous in his sight. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The scripture says that we have a new and living way opened up for us to come into the presence of God by the sacrifice of Christ. Our record of debt has been done away with. Our sins are forgiven. We are washed clean and we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. What a blessing that our sins are atoned for. What a glorious truth that, that, that we can know that though our sins be like scarlet for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been washed whiter than snow. Now, look at verse 4. Verse 4 says that, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. After the cleansing comes the blessing. And what a rich blessing it is. We can see here, Charles Spurgeon says in this verse, verse 4, we see election, effectual calling, access to God, acceptance, and sonship. After cleansing from sin, God brings his people near to dwell in his courts. And of course, the picture is, is, is the gathering in of the people near to the tabernacle. And, and, and that's obviously the, the immediate application of what this is picturing, but that's not what David has in his mind, I don't think. What David's mind is talking about is not physical proximity to the temple or to the tabernacle, 
The temple didn't exist in David's life. But the spiritual proximity, spiritual communion with God, that my sins have been washed away and I can be brought into nearness with God and fellowship with God and enjoy the holiness of God and the blessings of communion with God and dwelling in the presence of God with the people of God. And and the, the richness of this reality is even richer for us in Christ Jesus. As I said, Spurgeon says, this verse contains election, that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be objects of God's grace. And that in the fullness of, of time, God, who chose a people for himself from every tribe and trunk and nation, sent his son to pay for our sins by his death on the cross and by his resurrection from the dead. And then for each one of us here who is a Christian, God sent his spirit by the proclamation of the gospel to regenerate the heart that was dead like a stone and gave us a heart of flesh. Those whom God has chosen, the Son has atoned for and justified and the Spirit has regenerated will be brought into the household of God as blood-bought sons and daughters. And Apostle Paul really, uh, he emphasizes this theme in Colossians chapter 1. It's the same point. That Jesus, in, in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, it says that Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Even though once we were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Christ has reconciled us to God in his body of flesh by his death. In order that we might be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach to God. We who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of God's own Son. So David is is thanking God for the abundance of his grace. He is thanking God that God is the true and living God who hears prayer. He is praising God that his sins are atoned for. And being atoned for, he is brought near to God in fellowship and can enjoy the satisfaction of fellowship with God. And that is what we have been blessed with. How blessed we are to be children of God, chosen by Him, brought near to Him through the gospel. What a blessing it is to be satisfied with the goodness of God's house, where we dwell not as a stranger or a guest, but like a child at home, the the hymn says. And this is the blessing that we know now. We know now that the blessing of having our sins forgiven and the blessing of being in the communion with God. But it's a blessing that we will know completely in the future when Christ will return and take his people to be home with him forever. We will know him fully, even as we are fully known 1 Corinthians 13, 12. We will see him face to face. We will worship him forever in the new heavens and the new earth, our home of righteousness. Oh, what a blessing. What a marvelous grace of God credited to unworthy sinners through Christ. This truly is uh, deserving of a song of praise. Praise my soul, the king of heaven, and to his feet thy tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, 
evermore his praises sing. So says the hymn writer. Do you know this God of grace? Have your sins been atoned for as David's were? Have you been chosen by God as an object of his grace to receive the blessings of sonship through union with his son? If you have, then let us praise him. Let us come into his courts with thanksgiving and enter his gates with praise. Let us thanks to him and praise his name. Praise is due to you, O Lord. To you shall our vows be performed because of the matchless grace shown to us in Christ Jesus. Amen. But what about those of you who are here who do not know this grace? What if your sins are not atoned for? For you who the holiness of God is a, a thunderous, fearsome sentence of judgment because of your transgressions. My friend, I urge you with the authority of the word of God to repent of your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for your cleansing. The, the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that's saying is God, the Son, took our sins in, his, in our place and gave us his righteousness. If you will repent of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture promises that you will be forgiven, that you will know the abundance of blessing that comes from our sins being washed clean. So in one word, verses 1 to 4, David's praising God that God is a God of grace. Let's keep on going. The second part, verses 5 to 8, David praises the God of might. Let's look at 5 to 7. It says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, stilling the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. And what is in view here is, is the mighty acts of God done in power. By his mighty power, God answered the needs of his people. He delivered them from enemies. He granted them salvation, upheld their cause, answered them with righteousness. So the, the immediate application is what God has done for the people of Israel. But the psalmist goes way beyond that. He says, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas God is not, is not a regional God, but he is the hope of all the earth, the farthest seas, the God of creation, the one potentate, the one creator, the one whose dwelling place is in heaven, who looks upon the earth and it thunders, whose footsteps are in the depths of the sea, who spread out the heavens. And then the, the psalmist says in verse 6, the one who by his strength established the mountains. And we live among we live among mountains, so we have an opportunity to think about mountains, especially if you go to the craggy, rocky peaks or some place where the mountains are even more majestic. And you see them, fierce, majestic, imposing, 
immovable. These were established by the strength of God, by his almighty power, by his divine authority. God exercises authority and dominion over his creation. In verse 7, God stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Something that's as powerful and beyond our control as the seas and the ocean, tsunamis and earthquakes, all these under the power and control of God. So what's the word that we use to talk about the power of God? It's God's omnipotence. God is all-powerful. That's the word that David has in mind here. And the omnipotence of God is not just uh, over some things, but it's even over the tumult of the peoples at the end of verse 7. And that means that God is omnipotent over creation and the affairs of men. The tumult of the peoples, all the raging of the nations under the supreme authority of God. Think about what that meant to David. All these nations around Israel, the Hivites, and the Hittites, and the Philistines, and, and so on. All the tumults of the people are under God's sovereign control, and yet God is not the author of sin. So what, what David is teaching us here is, is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of the providence of God, the doctrine of the omnipotence of God, that nothing is outside of God's power, nothing is beyond God's control, and nothing thwarts God's will. In a, a, a Psalm, Psalm 135, verse 6, it says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. God orchestrates all things in accordance with his sovereign will, and the result is that God is glorified. And that's the, that's the answer that David has in verse 8. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. God's omnipotence and his mighty acts in creation and history manifest the glory of God. And this brings us to the question, what does the doctrine of the omnipotence of God do for us practically what does it do for us tomorrow morning Monday morning when we go to work or or school or whatever we do here Derek Thomas pastor in uh, South Carolina helpfully pointed out two practical implications of the omnipotence of God first of all the doctrine of omnipotence teaches us that God does not lack the power to fulfill all his holy will. That's the point, that God does not lack the power to do what he has decreed. And what has God decreed? Ultimately, the, the scripture says, and this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, the Lord Jesus says in, in Matthew 16, that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell may try to prevail against God's church. Scripture says, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, but ultimately cannot succeed in thwarting the purposes of God for his church globally, universally, or thwarting God's purposes for the Christian individually. 
The death and resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that God's purposes will be kept to the very end, that he has the power to bring about all his holy will in his people. Despite the, the tumult of the peoples, despite the, the tumult of our own flesh, and the assaults within and without, and the tumults of the, the, the world around us, you, dear Christian, are held by God's power to the very end. And he who has begun a good work in you shall bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He will bring you all the way home to the courts of heaven, to the new heavens and the new earth that lie beyond, to dwell forever and ever with your God. So that's one practical application of the doctrine of omnipotence. It gives us the assurance that God's will will be accomplished. Secondly, the doctrine of God's omnipotence guarantees Romans 8.28. I think almost all of us know Romans 8.28, and it is a comfort to our soul that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. We experience many things in life, things that we would call good, the kind of things that David is praising God for here, right? Abundance of harvest and blessing and children and, and so forth. But we also experience things that do not feel good. But God promises to work all of them together in the mysterious providence of God for the good of his people. And, and, and that is accomplished because God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. And the doctrine of omnipotence guarantees that Romans 8.28 will always be true in every situation, at every time, in every context. God can answer all of your prayers. What is too powerful for God? What is too hard for God? Uh, the scripture says. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord who is omnipotent. John Newton wrote, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. How often do you think about the omnipotence of God? How often do you appreciate that God is in utter and complete control of all things around you? That even the roaring of the seas and the tumult of the peoples are under God's sovereign hand? How will a greater appreciation of God's omnipotence, of his mighty power, change the way that you view trials in your life? How will it change your view of the way that you witness to unbelievers that God has put in your path? David, in this psalm, says, By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. This is what, may God help us to behold his power. May God help us to have the appreciation that David has, that his omnipotent power is manifested in the life of the believer and in all things, and that we are guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. May this produce in us praise for God's mighty works. And then, Let's keep on going to the third part in verse 9 to 13 where finally David's attention turns 
to the abundant provision of material blessings that God has given. Verse 9 to 11. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The imagery is very rich. It pictures an abundant overflow of blessings. And as we mentioned earlier, the quality of the harvest in Israel was so dependent on the seasonal rains. And this year, the Lord visited the earth and watered it. It was greatly enriched so that the land produced abundant harvest. The hard soil is softened with the abundance of God's showers. And the Lord crowned the year with bounty. And the, the picture at the, in verse 11 where it talks about the wagon tracks overflowing with abundance, what comes to my mind, I picture this big wagon just overflowing with wheat and olives and dates and whatever else the Israelites were harvesting. And there's just so much that it's falling off the wagon. And as the wagon goes along, the wagon tracks are filling up with the food because of the bountifulness of God's blessing. Notice here again the repeated emphasis that God is the one that's producing such plenty. You visit, you enrich, you provide, you prepare, you water, you crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow. And this is a reminder to us that God is the provider of all good things. That we have received everything good as a, a gift from the hand of a loving Heavenly Father who delights in providing good gifts to His children Verses 12 to 13 continues, The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Here there's a personification. It's, it's as if the, the very earth itself is so uh, overwhelmed with the abundance of God's blessing that even the, the, the nature, the, the valleys and the hills and the meadows and, and, and the pastures they begin singing in praise to God. And this is a, a, a testimony to the, to the love and to the kindness and to the provision of God, that God shows tender mercies to his creatures. It reminds us that God is long-suffering, that he makes the rain fall on the righteous and the wicked alike. It reminds us that we are dependent upon God for all things, we breathe his air. We eat his food. We drink his water. Our, our, our society is, 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 is rich. We are somewhat abstracted from even the, the very act of cultivating. If we need food, we go to the grocery store. And, and that makes it very easy for us to lose sight of God's provision and how easily we focus on, on what we do not have or what we appear to lack or or what God has not provided for us, rather than uh, focusing on what grace God has lavished richly upon us. So think about it. How has God marvelously, marvelously provided for you? What has his provision been in the past year, even within this local body? And we can think of many things. 
the Lord has brought us through COVID-19. I know many churches of our size where more than one person has died. But the Lord has mercifully spared us within this body. And even some who are sick can testify to the presence of God and the blessings of God in the midst of trials, how the Lord has strengthened them, encouraged them, and blessed them with a special measure of his presence. We, we experienced in the past while an abundance of material provisions, even within this church, that we did not expect and could not comprehend. And the Lord has blessed us with, with immaterial things that are such a richness of blessing. What a privilege that we gather together with the people of God in freedom and that we're able to fellowship with one another. What a privilege and a benediction the love of Christ is within this body. How wonderfully the Lord provides abundant harvest of his word week after week. The Lord has blessed our church with many gifts, even, even gifts of new life, new babies already born or soon to be born. Uh, we can think of other things as well. But the point is, is that God has, in his abundant grace, provided many, many rich blessings for his people. He has brought us through a season of difficulty. He has caused fresh springs to flow forth rivers of blessing. And even for us, some of us, who are not in the season of blessing now, who are not experiencing so-called uh, a time of harvest, a harvest of, uh, of soul, uh, a harvest in the soul. Maybe your, your, your life feels more barren than it does abundant. Even for you, we find comfort in this psalm. And for this, let's step back a step. Step back a step from this psalm. Let's think about the big themes that David's praising God for. Verses 1 to 4, that God is a God of grace. That he has atoned for our sins. That he has chosen us in the beloved. That he has crowned us with loving kindness and every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And then in the second part, that God is a God of omnipotence that he is sovereign and that his holy will is accomplished in all things and through all things. And then in the third part, that God is a God of abundant blessing. So these are the ingredients that we need to trust in the Lord, that we know that he is a God of grace, that he is a God of omnipotent power, no matter what the circumstances may feel like, and that he is a God who lavishly blesses his children in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian, he has chosen you in the beloved. He has placed his seal upon you through the death and the resurrection of his son. He has shown you love in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. If God is for us, who can be against us? Apostle Paul says, who can thwart the power of God? Who can overturn the abundance of God's grace? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And we do have all things, because we have Christ, in whom is hidden all the riches of the treasures of the knowledge of God, and through whom we experience closeness with God and fellowship with God and the abundance of God's goodness. 
It may well be that your circumstances are not good, that you are experiencing deprivation rather than abundance, but by his omnipotent power, God will use that circumstance for your good and for his glory so we can trust him. And together, we can praise the Lord along with David, along with the people of God at David's time and and all the saints for the grace that God has given to us in Christ Jesus, for the power of God over all things, and for the wonder of God's abundant provision for us, especially for us in Christ and in the gospel. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, our lives truly do overflow with the bounty of the blessings of Christ that we have in him. Thank you, O Lord, when iniquities prevail against us, you atone for our sins. Christ shed his blood for the people of God, that, O Lord, our sins may be blotted out, that we might be made righteous in your sight, justified, O Lord, through his resurrection from the dead. And in him, O Lord, you have given us every spiritual blessing. Please forgive us for our failure to praise you, Lord, help us to remember your grace, your awesome power, your abundant blessing, that we might praise you and that we might share with others, Lord, the goodness of God in Christ Jesus, that you may be glorified. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.